Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that is just bursting with happiness about the solidarity economy. Bursting! <laughs> Today we have Kellen and Laura. And we are continuing the conversation from last week with Evie Zavado and Dr. Jessica Gordon-Empard. As we mentioned last week, Evie is the program manager of CEANYC, Scenic, or the Cooperative Economics Alliance of New York City. She's also a worker owner of the Sunset Scholars Tutoring Cooperative and, of course, a socialist feminist. Dr. Gordon-Empard is a political economist and a professor of community justice and socioeconomic development in the Africana Studies Department at John Jay College, part of the CUNY system, and author of Collective Courage, A History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. She has numerous publications on cooperative economics, community economic development, credit unions, wealth inequality, community wealth, and black political economy. And we are so excited to talk to them today. Yeah. All right. Welcome back. So we wanted to get started, just jump right back in, thinking about the solidarity economy as sort of a cohesive unit. So, you know, a lot of people might know about co-ops like we were talking about earlier, but really the solidarity economy is an entire ecosystem. So not just co-ops, but credit unions, public banks, community gardens, community-supported um, agriculture, community land trusts, et cetera, et cetera. And um, we were wondering if y'all could talk about, you know, cooperation amongst these groups and maybe historical examples of thriving solidarity economies, not just, you know, individual co-ops, for example. So I guess I can start. I agree. It's really important. And when I talk about, I actually have talked about a cooperative sorry, solidarity, cooperative, commonwealth, where I kind of mean the same thing, but focus more on official co-ops in the system, mm-hmm. like all the different co-ops. But I also, as I've been saying, I believe that we need to create and that we partly live in a solidarity economy and we need to create one. And that is a whole ecosystem where everything we need is done through solidarity economics and some collectivism. When I first started looking into African-American cooperatives, I actually found a book that W.E.B. Du Bois wrote in 1907 called Economic Cooperation Among Negro Americans. Mm. And um, he was very persuasive in that notion of economic cooperation, which is what I really think is the new term is the solidarity economy in the sense of it doesn't have to be a formal, formally incorporated co-op. It's really about economic cooperation in whatever ways so for him even like the underground railroad in the 1700s was a solidarity economy or what he called economic cooperation because if you think about it it wasn't just a social movement of well-meaning people helping enslaved peoples to run away and to escape it was really an economy because you had to have people who had the resources to feed the escapees who had the a big enough cart to have a false bottom that they could hide in to move them around, right? You had to have people who had houses where they had separate cellars that could be hidden, right? So it's, it wasn't just well-meaning people who said, oh, yeah, here, I can, I can hide you or help you. It really was an economic system 
of solidarity where all the pieces so that you could move somebody from, you know, from Florida to Canada. Right. And if you think about that, we do that in other ways also all the time. Our sanctuary movements now are similar, right? Again, it's a kind of social political movement, but there's also a whole solidarity economy behind it. There's the bartering of exchanging goods and services in a way that doesn't create, you know, need for money, right? And how we help each other, all the other pieces. So I think not just thinking about the formal entities that create a solidarity economy, but again, back to those values the sense of solidarity among people are important in terms of actual like a town or something that sort of had all those pieces. We don't have as many examples of that in the U.S. as, say, the Europeans do. In fact, there was a great study done in Italy about how the towns that were more than 80 percent cooperative, actually the whole standard of living, uh, education level, trust in government, all that all went up the more co-ops you had in your community. Um, we don't have as much of that in the U.S., but we do have, at least the studies I did for African Americans, we do have times where an independent black school tried to create a sort of co-op community. So they had the school for the children, but they had a co-op among the parents, so they shared a tractor so they could farm. They had a credit union at a community store, that kind of thing. So we have some of those kind of small examples with formal entities for how a co-op society tried to kind of create a variety of co-ops to address all the different needs. But I don't know, you know, and hopefully um, Evan can fill in there. We don't have a lot of examples of real solidarity ecosystems in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I 100% I agree. I think that cooperation amongst cooperatives is essential. And just going back to kind of thinking about, you know, what is a worker co-op or what is a co-op, a lot of them adhere to or are guided by seven cooperative principles, one of which is cooperation amongst cooperative, as well as concern for a community. And that's kind of the entire reason that Scenic exists is especially, or maybe not especially in New York City, but definitely in New York City, there's a strong siloization. I'm not sure if that's a word, but um, a lot of <laughs> it works. are really siloed. So worker co-ops know what's going on with worker co-ops. Community gardens know what's going on with community gardens, et cetera. But there's not a lot of conversations across groups with shared values um, who are who have the potential and are thousands, tens of thousands of people in New York City with shared values that could be you know, working together in really exciting ways. So that, that's really why we exist is to kind of build out that framework and to kind of create a shared self-identity as people who are participating in, you know, what we're calling a solidarity economy. And, okay, so yeah, I don't know of examples of full towns that are operating with cooperative economies, but I can uplift some examples that are happening in New York City on a more micro level. So the first is I was talking with a woman who lives in an HDFC, which is one of those limited equity housing cooperatives that I was talking about earlier. Um, she lives in one in Crown Heights, which is a neighborhood in Brooklyn, and they're actually three different sister HDFCs. So all the HDFCs in New York have vendor directories that they source from for the different services that they need in their buildings. So whether it's janitorial services, porter services, childcare services, et cetera, um, a lot of that happens, you know, kind of on a more informal level where people are just taking care of each other's kids, but they have this vendor directory that they source from. And she was talking about how she wanted to include specifically worker cooperatives in New York City <clears throat> in their vendor directory so that that was who um, HDFC buildings were sourcing from. And so, for example, the majority of worker cooperatives in New York City 
are in care industries, so childcare, elder care, and cleaning services. And so having that relationship where HDFCs are directly sourcing from worker cooperatives is a really exciting example of um, actual solidarity economy relationships across sector. They're also partnering with different community gardeners in their neighborhoods in order to help them set up community gardens. And then the last thing with that HDFC is a lot of HDFCs are interested in becoming drop-off sites for community-supported agriculture programs mm. because something that um, those CSA programs are really struggling with in New York is having actual space to do their pickup and drop-off sites. Um, and a lot of that has to do with access to real estate, but also it has to do with insurance that they don't have. So being able to do that on HDFC sites is a huge boon for their work. And it also um, increases their membership significantly because then HDFCs can be a source of, you know, thousands of people living in those buildings who want to uh, purchase from their CSA programs. And in exchange, also, aside from the membership, HDFCs do collective purchasing, which helps keep their insurance and maintenance costs way down. And then they can teach CSA programs about how, to, how that collective insurance um, purchasing works and connect them to folks. Another example, so the for worker cooperatives in New York City, real estate is really out of control. As a lot of folks know, it's extremely challenging for um, worker-owned businesses to be able to secure space to operate their storefronts. And a lot of that is because of just general real estate, like rampant hikes in rent, but also because a lot of worker-owned businesses, particularly in New York City, are run by immigrant women, low-income New Yorkers who are really locked out of, you know, mainstream funding sources. And so they're looking not only to pool resources within worker cooperatives to have space, but also to partner with HDFC buildings that have commercial lease space in their buildings in order to do that um, potentially at discounted rates or to facilitate that relationship between concrete space in New York and worker owners who are in need of having storefronts. A third, a third thing that's a good example is a lot of worker-owned co-ops, but also um, HDFC buildings and you know community gardens, because it's basically near impossible for them to get loans from banks that don't understand what they're doing and also don't want them to be doing what they're doing. Um, they turn to community development credit unions who are explicitly committed to supporting low-income New Yorkers and giving loans to, you know, for some of them, like the Lower East Side People's Federal Credit Union, specifically to cooperatives um, and groups that are doing that work so that they're able to actually get loans. One more example <laughs> um, is so the Park Slope Food Co-op that a lot of people um, I was saying call kind of a unicorn in food co-op world because it has over 18,000 members. It's a member labor model. So it means that the groceries um, are significantly cheaper, about 60% cheaper than a conventional grocery store. Um, and it also does more business annually for its size than other like Whole Foods Trader Joe's in the United States. So it's just kind of like a really impressive model of successful cooperation. They have so many members. And so they will lend out their members to do their shifts with other organizations. So, for example, Scenic is able to use volunteer labor or member labor from the Park Slope Food Co-op. And people can do stuff for us that counts towards their shift hours. And so they're able, we're able to offer, for example, free photography services to worker-owned businesses that don't have access to the funding to you know, be able to do their promotional materials and stuff like that. So we get a photographer from Park Slope Food Co-op who's been able to provide these services free of cost to worker owners and other cooperative groups that are in need. And then the last example that I'll say that I'm really excited about, so there's a worker co-op in Bedside called Brooklyn Packers, and they do food distribution work in packaging. And so they recently just hired somebody who's an organizer with the Central Brooklyn Food Co-op, which is a Black-led um, food co-op that's, you know, explicitly grounded in food sovereignty for Black people living in Central Brooklyn, which is a neighborhood that's particularly vulnerable to gentrification right now by, you know, white wealthy newcomers. 
And so that workaround co-op is partnering directly with the Central Brooklyn Food Co-op. And they're also working to do that to subsidize a Brooklyn-supported agriculture. They're calling it a BSA instead of a CSA um, in their neighborhood. So those are just some examples of solidarity work that's happening on a more hyper-local, micro-level in New York City. are really exciting and really, I think, indicative towards people self-identifying as being part of a solidarity economy, a larger movement, and kind of putting those pieces together and connecting them in a real tangible, extremely exciting way. That, Thank you. Oh, my really God. Great. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to add, there's a lot of exciting things with connections between housing and other kinds of solidarity economies. You already mentioned a lot, but um, in my research, I also found sometimes not even housing co-ops, but housing projects and an empowered tenant association can also connect with other things. So I think in the 90s, the Ocean Hill Brownsville Tenants Association actually supported a worker-owned security company to do the security for their building. And I've heard of also doing worker-owned management companies in the building. And then some of the housing co-ops do also have, as you said, they have childcare in their building already, uh, credit union branch in their building. Because again, it's, it's a nice way since you already live there to connect with these other supports and services. One of my favorite examples in New York City in the early 20th century was the Dunbar Housing Co-op, which was most, which was all black at the time. They actually had in their basement, they ran a, what they called a milk collective, but it really was a way to buy for all the, this was during the Great Depression, for all the families to you know do a buying club to make sure they had milk and supplies for their family, that kind of thing. And you know, on a side note, one of the interesting people who was involved in running that milk co-op was actually Thurgood Marshall's wife in the oh, 30s. Wow. So this is before Thurgood Marshall even became famous. It was his first wife. But she's listed um, on the board of directors of this co-op as Mrs. Thurgood Marshall. So really interesting. That is really cool. Yeah. So I think we've kind of been dancing around this topic a little bit, but we know that it is often women of color doing this work and in fields that are historically devalued and hyper-exploited because of their placement as feminized labor. And, you know, as this is a socialist feminist podcast, after all, we were wondering what does a solidarity economy mean to both of you from a feminist perspective? So I definitely talk about the importance, in fact, the essential role of black women in the black co-op movement. And actually, when you do some of the research, it's not just in the black co-op movement, but in the entire U.S. co-op movement, how important the black women were. But of course, my work is focused on uh, the black co-op movement. For me, it was uh, actually surprising how essential and involved black women were in the co-op movement when I, I mean, it shouldn't have been. And I realized after the surprise that it shouldn't have been a surprise because actually women kind of lead the social justice movements, right? The women have been essential in the civil rights movement as well. And women kind of do all the scud work and our community organizers, right? So it shouldn't be a surprise to us, but it was surprise. It was a pleasant surprise to see how strong a role African-American women had in the co-op movement and how even black men who were most of the ones who were writing about the, the co-op movement recognized the role of women. 
And so one of my examples is in Gary, Indiana, the co-op society there started out with a study group and then a co-op store and then a gas station and a credit union and a second branch of their co-op store. But uh, the man who wrote about that co-op, who actually became the president of Jackson State University, oh, wow. he talked about how essential the Women's Guild was, that there were many times when the whole co-op society was going to fall apart and that it wasn't clear that they could keep all the projects going. But the women, uh, the group had started with a study group. There was a women's guild. As part of that study group, the women's guild kept studying throughout the whole five years of this um, co-op project and that it was the women who kept everything going between their organizing, their study guild, and their uh, engagement and energy to keep things going. It was really them. So that was, like, really cool. The Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, their women's auxiliary, was the one that pushed cooperatives and cooperative education for that whole uh, national organization, actually international because they had um, chapters in Canada as well. And their president, Helena Wilson, again, was recognized even by A. Philip Randolph, who you know is the founder and president of that of the Brotherhood, as being, again, essential to bringing the information, keeping the notion of co-ops alive, starting study groups in about 17 of their chapters, helping to start co-ops. So again, that's just that energy, the organizing ability, but also the the management skills, I guess, that women have, even though they often did it in the background and weren't always considered the leaders. And then there were women-owned cooperatives also from early on, because a lot of the times it was easier, I guess, to organize women who were doing quilt making or women who were doing cleaning services or even women for the credit unions, it seemed like sometimes in the black community, it was easier for the women to do the managing and organizing and to take charge of those things. So I do think that um, we need to make sure to recognize and uh, the, uh, the agency and the power of women. And in most cases, it was not that the men let the women do it. It was that the women did it, right? And the men came... <laughs> around mm. <laughs> so I think that's, right I think that's also another because sometimes you hear oh yeah well my husband let me do it or the men say yeah we allowed <laughs> right but in a lot of these cases it was really the opposite the women let it and they dragged the men into it and then the men did the part that they had to do because I don't know if all of you know but up until about the 90s women couldn't even take out loans if they were married without their husband co-signing mm. So there's also these things of women doing all this stuff, but then having to drag the men in because the men had to be the, you know, the final signer or the the president or whatever of something. So the, those kind of interesting dynamics happened as well. And then finally, I did mention that I was really surprised but pleased to find that some of the black women actually were recognized in the white co-op community. So again, Helena Wilson is one of those. Um, they were headquartered in Chicago, and the Chicago co-op community, there's letters that they wrote to A. Philip Randolph telling him how important the women's auxiliary was to the co-op projects like they started in the 30s, or was it early 40s, optical, an eye clinic, a co-op eye clinic mm. among all the unions and co-ops in Chicago, integrated 
eye clinic and wow. uh, the ladies auxiliary of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters was the group that put in the first $2,000 and did the organizing to start it. And so there's wow. a letter from the man to A. Philip Randolph telling him how important the women's group was, you know, that the women's group of the Brotherhood was and that the eye clinic wouldn't have happened. Nanny Helen Burroughs, also in the 30s in Washington, D.C., who started a, a woman's co-op and then a, um, a farm and worker co-op out of Deanwood, uh, northeast in, in Washington, D.C. It turns out whenever they wanted somebody from the, whenever the, the Washington, D.C. chapter of what's now considered NCBA, the National Cooperative Business Association, at the time it was called um, Cooperative League of the United States. They had a DC chapter of the national organization. They used to call on Nanny Helen Burroughs to come and give speeches at the co at the chapter meetings, and when they had visitors coming in, and she was just she was a black principal and teacher, and started a, a black co-op. But somehow they knew she was a dynamic speaker, and um, so there's letters to her asking her to please come to this meeting and be the keynote or be one of the speakers, that kind of thing. So it's really great just to see how important women were recognized. And I guess that's the way that the solidarity economy has allowed women and some of that invisible work to actually be mm -hmm. recognized. Yeah, I 100% second that. It's totally, totally women and women of color doing the work. Um, and I, I think that's true throughout the country world but like in New York City solidarity economy work I can say like with 100% accuracy that it's the vast majority women of color who are doing this work and particularly um, when you think about like worker-owned cooperatives in New York it's a lot of immigrant women from Central and South American countries and that has a lot to do and the reason that it's a lot of care industry work is partly because you know that's how where funding is and where funding supports the work but also because these are women who are doing worker-owned cooperatives in those sectors, not, you know, randomly, but because through having worked in these sectors for many, many years, that's where they experienced, you know, significant hyper-exploitation because they were women, because they were doing, you know, what is considered feminized labor and because that's, because they're immigrants. So it's a really powerful way for people to reclaim workspaces and actually give value in a lot of different ways to work that's undervalued because it's seen as feminine.
So something that I wanted to elaborate on, Dr. Gordon-Emhorn, you talked a lot, or you mentioned a couple of times, reading groups, and that's something that you highlight a lot in your book, and that I think is critical and want to pull out here is reading groups. Um, and as a socialist and a feminist and a worker owner, I know that so much of what I do and believe comes from personal experience and lived realities, but also reading things like your book and talking about it with others. Um, and I know that, you know, I've been in different socialist feminist working groups that have been really useful. And I was wondering what, if you could expand on, you know, the benefits of reading groups for cooperative economics um, and what you've found that to be historically and currently. Yeah, thanks. That's an, another one of those surprising findings. You know, after I kind of did all the detailed work of just uh, originally was just trying to find the existence of black co-ops. And then I realized not only were there black co-ops, but there were all these black leaders who had written about why we should use co-ops in the community and why co-ops were a good strategy for economic empowerment and uh, black liberation. So I ended up getting into economic thought, but I also tried to pull out sort of what were the themes, what were the commonalities between uh, the movements through the years, what were the commonalities between the co-ops that I found. And it seemed like really to the one, you know, there was no co-op that I found that I learned anything about how it started that hadn't started with some kind of study group. And so that was really turned out to be really interesting to me, not just how important education is. And of course, it's also one of the seven principles of being a cooperative, continuous education. But it turned out that I think there were sort of three processes, three prongs to the study group kind of thing. The first thing is that solidarity of just coming together to talk to your neighbors and say something is wrong here. We need to fix it. How do we fix it? Right. So a lot of the study groups, that's what they started with. You know, somebody called a meeting, you know, the last bank left our community and we have no financial services. What are we going to do? Or we have no access to healthy food or something. So just starting to come together to talk about a problem is actually the beginning of starting a co-op, right? But then you also need to learn about what are your options for, for addressing the problem. And that's where connecting with cooperative economics, deciding they need to learn about cooperative economics and consumer economics, that was the next step. So building from just coming together to say what are the problems to then finding some solutions and studying them so that they knew what to do. Some of the study groups, you know, lasted like the, the um, Gary and Deanna group was it was 18 months before they actually opened their first co-op, but they met, I think it was weekly for that period of time, just learning what they didn't learn. They put together actually a course in the high school, the black high school offered two courses in cooperative economics because of that study group. And they realized how important teaching it. Um, that was in the night school, the high school. So two adults. And I think the left, Oh, and sorry. And then the third prong <laughs> was after you study together. So you learn to trust each other. You study a, uh, a model together and then you'd go and implement the model but then you realize that you need to still keep that study group going even as you're implementing because there's always more things to learn you need to bring in the new people who didn't you know weren't the starting group they need to be um, educated and as I said that Gary group also learned that they were stronger if the studying continued right so it's not just we need to study until we open but that we need to keep moving and keep learning. I think also one of the things I learned um, from the wider worker co-op movement in the 2000s 
was not just how important study groups per se are, but how important the continuous learning about how to be a democratic organization, right? So the stronger modern worker co-ops that I found are ones that continued to explore and teach conflict resolution, consensus building, facilitating a you know strong facilitation of a meeting. How do you you know how do you solve issues and how do you figure out who uh, is a strong member and who's not? All those things that take time to talk about, right? Groups that co-ops that were able to actually pay people, especially the worker co-ops, that can add the time it takes to be in a meeting, right? So it's not extra or volunteer work, but it's actually part of your job and part of your hours. They also were able to do better because they realized how important it was to keep talking, keep learning, keep developing procedures and policies together, keep bringing in new ideas. And so that really, I think, had turned out to be a strength of these organizations. I mentioned Helena Wilson also, who started 17 study groups in chapters around the country for the Brotherhood Ladies Auxiliary. And there, again, even though they didn't always start a co-op, it was important, again, for them to talk about these issues, to study cooperatives and how they could start one and figure out if that was the right move for them or if there was something else they could do, that kind of thing. And so that being able to have these frank conversations, to explore models, and then even to tweak models, because the other thing we haven't talked about is sort of how flexible the co-op solidarity models are. And often a group needs to tweak it to meet their needs. But if you don't study and work together, right, you can't tweak it. So again, all these reasons why I think um, I was able to notice that, find that, and see, um, see the effects of it. And now I've actually talked to groups, you know, Philadelphia got money to do 20 study groups over a year's period. Um, the, uh, a group in, uh, uh, North Carolina in, um, Durham, North Carolina actually had a citywide reading group. They read my book and then moved on to other books. So a lot of groups are now seeing, right. Sort of the dual triple functions of coming together like that. Mm, That's amazing. So I know we kind of touched on this before, but we weren't super specific about this. But a lot of times what you hear, particularly if people are trolling you on Twitter or <laughs> just like people who maybe aren't um, haven't done the work to really look into these things, is that there's this misconception about cooperatives or socialism or lowercase d democracy that it can't work that it's just a bunch of leftists who know nothing about business because leftists can't know anything about business and sitting around and getting nothing done. What could we possibly do without a boss? Um, So I guess if I was hoping we could talk a little bit about that specific narrative and also highlight some examples of cooperation and speak to that misconception that, you know, we kind of started to address earlier about co-ops just being a bunch of hippies. So, you know, I told you early on that I, I'm, I'm a trained economist. I have a PhD in economics. And actually, uh, the economics field is not, is not really as strong about cooperative economics. I actually didn't learn, I don't think I learned one thing with a PhD in economics about cooperative economics while I was in grad school. I'm pretty much self-taught, mm. you know, and it doesn't mean that there aren't 
theories of cooperative economics out there and there's not good books. There are, and I read them on my own, but it's not, wasn't part of the curriculum that I was taught. Um, and part of the reason is um, because, as we said, traditional economics, you know, is capitalist neoclassical economics, which doesn't really believe in group agency. It really is, fo- is, a, is focused on individuality and that kind of thing. Right. So the econ, the traditional econ theory says that, right, that economics works better when individuals act in their own self-interest and that, that their own self-interest translates into the common good. And because of competition and people's individual actions, it all works out. <laughs> right, which is nonsense, right? Uh, all of us who, you know, really care about the world and study these things know that that's all BS, but that's the way the system works. Mm. So, of course, under that analysis, there is no place, and you're silly to use cooperatives, right? And then business schools, which also might study cooperative economics and cooperative business development and social entrepreneurship really kind of poo-poo it, though they're coming around a little bit to social entrepreneurship, but mostly they don't talk about it. It's very few business schools, but more business schools and economics departments talk about it. And again, they really believe that democracy is too messy, right? Direct democracy. If you have too many voices, you can never come to any decisions, that you have to have majority rule. Otherwise, you know, it takes too long, that you can't run a business if it takes you two hours to come to a decision. But luckily, we have studies and practices that show that that's actually not true. Sometimes the business decisions are much more sustainable and practical and implementable if you've taken the extra time to make sure everybody in the company understands it and either agrees to it or accepts it or whatever. Um, so those long deliberations and coming to consensus actually have been, we're finding that it makes a company stronger. Having people have a say, feel a sense of decision making, as well as having an ownership stake actually makes them more productive in worker co-ops. So we're learning a lot more about um, why and how these cooperatives and solidarity systems actually are better and stronger and more productive if you want to use just production. But also we're learning that they create leadership development. Uh, social capital, which we're also finding out is just as important as finance capital to mm-hmm. keeping companies going and connecting companies. I also found in my research that co-ops and solidarity economy institutions have much more, have much better relationships with their communities. And so that community support and consumer support also help to make them more viable. We know actually that uh, cooperative businesses have long uh, last longer than uh, small businesses have longer longevity so in the first year I think what is it 80 percent of small businesses fail yeah I think it's like that yeah I forgot my numbers and I was going to say 50 percent of co-ops survive but I think it's more than that and in the first five years I think it's like 90 something percent of regular small businesses are out of business but you know 30 to 40 percent of Co-ops stay in business. So co-ops have a much better longevity rate. And we think a lot of it is because, you know, the time it takes to put one together, the commitment people have to have to being involved, right? The fact that you share, share risks and, you know, two heads better than one kind of thing. 
the fact that there's lots of other community support for co-ops, that all those things help to keep them longer lasting. But the mythology is that they're shorter lived Mm. because the ones that don't last as long get more of the attention and the publicity, right? And then, as I said, there's this notion that people can't cooperate. You know, they either we don't know how to cooperate or we can't. The democracy doesn't really work. And the mythology that if you don't, if you know, you have to have representative democracy, if any democracy. And that, you know, in business, we really have to leave all our values aside and just practice business cutthroat values as if, you know, and, and we pretend that that's how it works when that's really not right. Even the most successful businesses actually practice a lot of collectivism and shared leadership and then right all the big corporations all cohort together and create cartels and all that kind of stuff but they pretend that's not cooperation right (laughs) they set prices and all that stuff right the right but anyway so we they they cooperate and then pretend that it's not cooperation so i'm rambling a little bit like they get to Uh, use the benefits (laughs) of cooperation but point saying like they got it they got that success on individualism alone. Right, right, right. You know, yeah, and I, I think, go ahead. I, I was going to say also, I think on the flip side, a lot of groups that are co-ops that maybe fail or aren't successful their first time around are thought of as cooperatives, but actually like when you think about, you know, what we were saying earlier, the difference between solidarity cooperatives and just, you know, blanket cooperatives, they might say they're cooperatives, but they're not actually put together with, you know, that real accountability put in place and that like, actual work of coming together beforehand to think about shared values. And so Mm. on the flip side, there's the non-cooperatives that are saying they're cooperatives that fail. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, as I said, I definitely learned from sort of the modern successful worker co-ops how important it really is to put all those, right, to have these shared values, shared ground rules, to have ways, right? Of course, in a democracy, we're not always going to agree there's going to be conflict, tensions, but there's ways to build, right, to, to, to move through that, right? There's ways to understand how to resolve conflict. And actually now I'm learning the term conflict transformation instead of conflict resolution, right? So it's not even so much to resolve conflict, but to help conflict transform us into something better, like the notion of dialectics, right? If you don't have a clash, you don't move to the next level. Right. So if we need if we need to stop being so conflict averse, but see conflict as a way to grow and learn, but a way to transform it so it doesn't it's not debilitating, I think is really important. And we're all at least those of us who are committed to self-management and real democracy and consensus building are starting to learn better that philosophy as well as the skills to achieve that level. Yeah. And I think uh, the last thing I'll say is democracy, I think, is hard but i think it's that's obviously so deeply exacerbated by the fact that from at least like in the united states the time that we're born to the time that we might be coming to cooperation in a more formal way of like actually starting a co-op we're so steeped in a society and an economy that has completely you know opposing values so it's that you know entire process of unlearning and relearning what it means to hold community together Absolutely. Which is why in a lot of, you know, locations where there's, you know, very successful cooperative economies, children from the time they're children are educated in not only about cooperation, but in a cooperative model. Right. Yeah. I actually have been railing against kindergarten. I think kindergarten is where we start to learn how to be capitalists. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, the cooperativeness in us is beat out. You know, I mean, they let us play cooperatively, but when we get serious, right, the serious part of kindergarten is sitting down, keeping your hands to yourself, not talking to your neighbor, regurgitating what the teacher says, right? So, you know, play is somehow it's okay. We want you to cooperate and be social when you play. But when we get down to the seriousness of learning how to read and really, you know, being in school, that's all about being an individual, not thinking for yourself, not collect, you know, not um, uh, not cooperating with your neighbors on an idea or anything like that. And from you know, by the first grade, anything we had that made us think about being cooperative is beat out of us, you know. And it's now cheating if you talk to your neighbor about something before you put the answer on the page. You're a cheater. Um, and so I do think we need to rethink our whole education system, totally. right? But the other thing, you know, as you reminded us, we're um, a feminist socialist uh, program here. The other thing is, you know, feminist or womanist ways of knowing and womanist ways of connecting with each other really are what help co-ops to thrive. But we don't always think about it or talk about it or in that way, right? Mm-hmm. But if we think more about, you know, anti uh hierarchy, anti-competition, humanist, womanist ways to be in the world, that's really what what we need more of and that help the co-ops to thrive, even though I know some people might not want to either call it that or recognize that. Mm. Totally. So I think we're getting to the end of this now, and we always like to leave listeners with some concrete recommendations for things that they can do. So... You know, we'd love to hear from both of you ways that people can get involved or help grow the solidarity economy movement in their own communities and workplaces. So, you know, briefly, if you guys have any tips or tricks you'd like to share, we'd love to hear them. Buy from co-ops <laughs> <laughs> is a really main major thing. Actually move your money into enterprises that are cooperative and solidarity economy groups and tell your friends to do the same. Um, and if in, if you're in New York City, there's over, as I said before, 2,000 different solidarity economy groups. They're not all, you know, groups that you can purchase from, but there are certainly a lot that you can purchase from. So I'd say, you know, look at New York City Network of Worker Cooperatives and what worker co-ops they've listed there. Look at what the scenic membership is and find ways to actually move your resources into those groups in a way that's sustainable and effective um, and also benefits you and the work that you're doing. Yeah. I agree with that. I also, you know, I'm going back to the study groups and re-education, right? We're all been miseducated, so we need to figure out ways to work together to re-educate ourselves about a values-based economy and what, you know, what that means for us um, very deliberately in our own lives and what that means for us in our communities and our municipalities and work up right so i really believe in working from the bottom up so if we start one to talk to each other and create solidarity economies in all that we do however we can do that um but then we build up we start to expect our municipalities to do that too so we have to interface with our elected officials and make sure they understand these models and make sure there's public resources to support these models so you know that kind of agitation after we do our homework stay open, you know, remember, this is hard work, it's not easy, it's not a simple fix. So you've got to be in it for the long run. Um, But that learning together and the commitment 
to understand what it means to be a learning community, right? That we're going to make mistakes, that we use those mistakes to help us learn, that there's going to be conflict, but we use that conflict to get us to a stronger, better place, right? To keep those um, ideas in play and to make sure we connect ourselves to that way of living and thinking so that we can be the people that we want to be, but also to make sure our children get exposed to that kind of training and that we demand that kind of training and perspective for our children because we don't want to have to retrain them by the time they're adults, right? If they grow up understanding and knowing this stuff, we can, you know, have them start their own co-ops from early on, middle school and high school. They can be in their own co-op solving their own local and community problems through a co-op. There's lots of really exciting youth co-ops that have been doing that. And the lessons they learn, the leadership that they develop, and the way that they come out by the time they graduate from high school, they're just different people Mm -hmm. than what the high schools are normally producing. Mm -hmm. So if we as adults can make sure that's happening for our children, even if they're still getting a traditional education, we can provide these kind of supplements, additions, um, experiences, etc. And then... uh, I've also started working with groups who are connecting sort of solidarity economy and culture. Mm. So it's really exciting this weekend, actually, in Brooklyn, there is actually a play based on my book called Black Black Conference, which is only playing until Monday. But it's an extremely creative, interactive theater production as if there was a black co-op conference in 1939. Um, but again, it's a really creative cultural way to bring these ideas and this information to people. A group I'm working with at Grassroots Economic Organizing is trying to do co-op fiction and co-op futurism. So take real life yes. co-op incidents and fictionalize it so it's more palatable for people. Mm. Um, so we're working on bringing some of that up. So I think also the, the connection to making it, making these ideas cultural, not just quote unquote economic. So making it really a part of how we think and feel, I think will be really important for the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you both so much for coming on Season of the Bitch and um, for sharing your wealth of knowledge uh, with us and with our listeners. Thank you for having us. Um, Okay. (laughs) That's our show. Thanks for sticking around for that two-parter. As always... You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Season of the Bee. We are (laughs) on Patreon. You can slide some money our way and support us that way. Get your episodes a whole day early. We just can't wait for that content. Um, We have merch on our website at Season Sweatshirt sale. We have such a big sweatshirt sale going on right now. We have like... Yeah, sweatshirts at a massive discount. I think they're at $25 right now, which is crazy for a crew neck sweatshirt. Super nice. Seasonofthebee.com. Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. We have a live show coming up, New York City, August 11th at Sea Bar. Is that right? Sea Bar? Star Bar. Star Bar. <laughs> if there's a Sea Bar, I'm sure it is great too. Sea Bar's in Buffalo. Sorry, everyone. Star Bar in Brooklyn. We can't wait to have you there. Details on the show will be coming up. We'll have like a poster and a way for you to get tickets ahead of time. Um, And there's going to be a massive dance party afterwards. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be awesome. 
Also, yeah. if you are a longtime listener of Season of the Bee or just a mega fan of Season of the Bee and you live in the area and you would be interested in emceeing the show, which would pretty much mean like you're you know enough about the show that you're asking specific questions about like why we did things in certain ways or like particular quirks that each of us have and things like that. Um, and we would like hash out the details on that. We are seeking an MC uh, to do that. That is outside of the coven. Um, so let us know. Let us know. Slide into our DMs or email us seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, friends. Yeah. Okay. Kellen, love you. Love you, Laura. (laughs) I hope you have a great day. Bye. (laughs) Love you. Bye. Season of the Bitch.